The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 16 Study Guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC16. This is Secret Church 16, Episode 2. So what is the gospel? That seems like a pretty important question, uh, particularly if we're discerning whether or not it's worthy of our confidence, the commitment of our lives to making it known. So like I mentioned, I realize there are some atheists, agnostic Hindus, Muslims, others tonight who may not have any confidence in the gospel. At the same time, I've got a feeling there's some, maybe many Christians who have waning, if any, confidence in the gospel. Many who might say we have confidence in it, but we're hesitant to proclaim it, to share it, which causes us to wonder how much confidence do we have in it. So what is the gospel that we believe, that we share? This sentence in your notes, my best attempt to summarize biblically the essence of the gospel. So I wanna share it, then we're gonna unpack it piece by piece. The gospel is the good news that the only true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe, has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin through his substitutionary death on the cross and to show his power over sin and death and the resurrection from the grave so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Now that's full, every word and phrase there important for so many reasons. Uh, I've mentioned it numerous times already, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians but don't believe the gospel as it's biblically defined there. And so that, that's huge. One of the most fundamental questions I wanna ask everybody who's involved in Secret Church tonight is, do you believe this? And if you don't believe it now, my hope is you might believe it before the night is over. And then once you believe it, and for all who say, yes, I believe this, We've, we've got to make sure that when it comes to sharing this gospel with others in the world, we want to make sure that this is the gospel we're sharing. Not some false gospel or diluted gospel or distorted gospel. We've got to make sure we're sharing a biblical gospel. So I didn't just make this definition up out of nowhere. This definition, I hope, trust, reflects God's word. I want to show it to you. And all over scripture, we see rich, varied imagery to describe the gospel. But if you were looking for a couple of texts that summarize the gospel, one would be Romans 3, 21 through 26, probably the greatest paragraph ever written anywhere, and then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. So let's read them and then think about what they're saying. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of one of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Oh, so how do you summarize what we just read? And what I did is I put in your notes an acrostic that I hope will help you remember the core truths of the gospel. 
John Metter is a pastor friend of mine in Texas. He and I have known each other for years. I was sharing with him how we have trained uh, members at the Church of Brook Hills to know and share the gospel. And he later shared with me how he had developed some and used some of the same language uh, to train his people and did it around this gospel acrostic. And I thought it was hugely helpful. So with his permission, I started using that acrostic. So here it is, G-O-S-P-E-L first, G, God's character. So one at a time, God's character. Ultimately, the good, the gospel is good news about God. Paul calls it the gospel of God. The gospel begins and ends with God. His character is the foundation of the gospel. The gospel presupposes everything the Bible teaches about the only true God. And it is therefore unintelligible apart from biblical testimony to the character and activity of God. I listed scripture after scripture here pointing to God as the ultimate begin and end of all things. In particular, the gospel is rooted in the holiness of God and his righteous hatred against sin and the love of God and his undeserved grace and mercy towards sinners. His holiness and his love. His holiness described in Isaiah 6, 43, Deuteronomy 32. His love portrayed in John 3, 16, Titus 2, Ephesians 2, like we read earlier. And then you see, down in Psalm 5, his hatred for sin his mercy towards sinners in the same place. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. So see it right there in that passage. Righteous hatred for sin and sinners mixed with unmerited love for sinners. Which leads to the question, how can both of those be true of God? We'll get to that. Can't wait to get to that. But suffice to say at this point, ultimately the gospel is about God. God's, it's God-centered with his nature, his actions at the heart of the message. And this is huge. We've got to remember the gospel is God-centered. It centers around who he is, which is exactly what we, we see in the verses that I've listed below. Exactly what we read just a minute ago in Ephesians 2. For the first three verses in Ephesians 2, Paul talked about the sinfulness of man, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But the hinge verse, the verse where everything in that passage changes, if you remember when you were reading it, verse 4, Paul said, but God, but God, and this is where everything changes, rich in mercy. And then remember all the things God does, Ephesians 2, because of his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the measurable riches of his grace. Who's doing all the action here? God is. He's the one who's acting. And notice how references to us are all in the passive voice. End of verse 5 in Ephesians 2, you have been saved. Not you saved yourself. Not, you were saved. This happened to you. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved. This has been done to you through faith, which we're talking about in a minute. But just in case we're not getting it, Paul makes it clear, this is not your doing. It's the gift of God. God did the same language over in Romans 3, 24. Paul said, all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Sinners are justified. This happens to them. Sinners don't justify themselves. They're justified by God. He does this. God does this. And he does all of this based on his character. See who God is. He's holy and hating sin. He's loving and merciful towards sinners. Because that's who we are. Oh, offense of sin. And this is a truth of the gospel that we just got to understand. Not just who God is, but who we are. Because if we diagnose ourselves wrongly, we'll never see the beauty of the gospel in a world of religions. And we'll never see our need, our desperate need for the gospel. What makes the gospel unique? D.A. Carson put it best when he said this. He said, in any domain, we're unlikely to agree as to what the solution of a problem is, unless we agree as to the nature of the problem. The religions of the world offer an enormous range of solutions to human problems. Some promulgate various forms of religious self-help exercises, 
Thomas. Some advocate a kind of faithful fatalism. Others urge tapping into an impersonal energy or force in the universe. Still others claim that mystical experiences are available to those who pursue them. Experiences that relativize all evil. One of the critical questions to ask is this. What constitutes the irreducible heart of human problems? That's a significant question. What is the problem that human religions are trying to solve? And how we answer that, pro that question has massive implications for how we understand the solution. What's good, what's true, what's most helpful for the human problem. And the problem that the gospel addresses is humanity's sinful rebellion against God. So I put Genesis 3. Here we won't read the whole story. But it's the story of sin's entrance in the world. The first time man and woman rebelled against God's way, turned to their own way instead. And it's not just the story of that man and that woman. It's the story of every man and woman in this gathering, every man and woman in the world. It looks different ways in different ones of our lives, but the story is the same. We've all turned aside from God and his ways and chose our own ways instead of his way. Every one of us has. Ever since Genesis 3, we're just like Adam and Eve. Even if God said we're not supposed to eat from that tree, we're going to do it anyway. He's not Lord over us. We can do whatever we want. So we spurn his authority as creator. This is the God who beckons storm clouds and they come. The God who tells the wind and the rain to fall here and they do it immediately. The God who says to the mountains, you go here, the seas, you stop there and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the bidding of the creator until you get to you and me and you and I have the audacity to look at him in the face and say, no. That's the problem. And as a result, we are guilty before God. We have all sinned against him. We have shame before God, which causes us to run from him, which is what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, in part because they are just like us. We are afraid of God. Guilty, it's shame, and afraid of God. Now, that doesn't mean we always admit or feel those realities, but the Bible diagnoses the human condition as turning aside from God to ourselves, as a result, standing in guilt and shame before him in our sin, and running from God, often in fear. All of us in our hearts, sinners against God, Romans 5, 12, 3, 23, turned aside from him, Romans 3, 12. And this is so significant to understand. Francis Schaeffer was once asked, if you had an hour to share the gospel with a modern person, how would you approach that hour? And his reply was, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he's morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we're too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt, and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. We've got to see how huge this is. Our problem in this world is not just that our life's not going right, we've messed up, we've done some wrong things, we've made some bad decisions. That's not the problem of sin. The problem is we in our hearts at the core of our beings have rebelled against God, we're separated from God, and we are dead without him. That's what Ephesians 2 said twice, dead in your trespasses. That's why that definition of the gospel we're using, hopelessly sinful men and women. Because of our sin, we're dead in sin. Dead in sin now, and if nothing changes, dead in sin for all of eternity. Old preaching professor used to take his students every semester to a cemetery one by one, and he would call his students, he'd bring them up, he'd say, I want you to stand over these, uh, these graves and call people to come to life. And awkwardly, everyone would step up there and speak out, and nothing would happen, and he would... Remind them that no matter how eloquent their sermons are, they're speaking to people who are spiritually dead. Only God can bring them to life. The, the hopelessness of sinners in and of ourselves. How, is, how can someone who's dead come to life? How many of you decided one day you're ready to come to life? We don't, you don't make that decision. It happens to you. It's something that is from the outside. There's nothing man can do. We've rebelled against God, separated from God, dead without God. The implications of this are huge. Because God's holy and just, then human rebellion rightly provokes his wrath and necessarily deserves eternal condemnation. 
I put various examples from Scripture of people being struck down by God, dead for sin, to remind us of the severity of sin before God, to remind us that one sin before an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinitely eternal judgment. Lot's wife falls dead for taking a glance backward. A man in Numbers 15 is stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Yuza struck down for touching the ark. Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead for lying about their offering. Romans 6.23 is clear. The wages of sin is death. It's eternal death. So yes, yes, while it's true that the gospel ministers to the consequences of sin in human life, the gospel identifies the rebellion of human sin as the root of our problem. We have all, all of us feel it, all of us, not some of us, all of us. We've rebelled against God and that's the root of our problem and a result as a result of our rebellion against an infinitely holy God we deserve infinitely eternal judgment the gospel reveals this infinite severity of our problem for an everlasting hell awaits every sinner who dies in the state of rebellion against God and it's not popular in our culture but it is the clear teaching of the Bible Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name... Hear it. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's coming a day when every single person in the world will stand before a holy God to give an account for our lives, and in and of ourselves, we will all stand guilty on that day. That is a problem. That is the problem. So how in the world can sinners avoid condemnation on that day? I'm glad you asked sufficiency of Christ, S. The gospel starts with God, and then in light of who we are in our sin, the gospel then centers around Jesus Christ. So amidst a sea of world religions, amidst a multiplicity of options in the world, the Bible makes the clear and controversial claim that Jesus is the only way to God, the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So how can that be true? How can Jesus be so unique, separate from over and above every other religion? Here's how. The gospel is the good news that God the Son took on full humanity and became one of us while remaining fully God. The Bible claims that Jesus is God in the flesh. God's not distant from us. God has come to us. And I put scripture after scripture that describes the humanity and deity of Jesus here. We'll talk about it later when we talk about Islam. He is utterly unique, fully human like us while fully God. In the words of Colossians Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this is really good news. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, the kingly rule of God has physically broken into human history. He proclaimed at the start of his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here and he's come for a reason. The gospel is the good news that Jesus lived a life of perfect sinless obedience. A life we have not lived, that none of us have lived. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and to bear the wrath we deserve for our rebellion against God. Both in his life and in his death, Jesus traded places with us and served as our substitute. That's a loaded sentence, but it summarizes the essence of what Jesus has done. He's lived the life none of us could live, a life of perfect obedience to God. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, no deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5, he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. And then, though he had no sin for which to die, he died. Why? In our place, as our substitute. For our sake he made him who had no sin, him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, and then he died the death we deserve to die. He paid the price for our sins. He endured the condemnation we deserve so that we see in Jesus, in Christ, God seeks the guilty. God has not left you alone in your guilt. He's come to you to seek and to save you. In Christ, God covers the shameful. He takes away our sin, John 1, 29. He clothes us in his righteousness, Revelation 19. And in Christ, God protects the fearful. Fear not, the angel announces in, about Jesus in Luke 2. Good news of great joy for sinful men and women can be saved from their sin. Jesus has lived the life we couldn't live. He's died the death we deserve to die. And then the good news keeps getting better. He has conquered the enemy we could not conquer, death itself. The gospel is the good news that Jesus triumphed over sin and death and his glorious resurrection. He has done what no other person, including no other religious leader in all of history has done. He's risen from the dead, making eternal life possible for everyone, anyone who believes in him. Jesus said to Martha, I'm the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So when I get a call a couple weeks ago and a good friend of mine I went to seminary with, I find out has cancer and and it's sapping away her life, and she's got hours to live, and she, I get a text from, from her husband saying she's about to go be with Jesus. And I call him up, and with tears, about a few hours later, he says, my wife is with Jesus now. That's gospel, glorious, good news. The gospel continues even further. It's the good news that Jesus ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and even now he intercedes for his people. Described in Acts 1, Romans 8. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, will come again in glory. That his kingdom will have no end. The gospel proclaims not only that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, but one day he's coming back to fully and finally consummate his kingdom on earth when sin and suffering and evil and death will be no more forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen says. So, so does this mean then that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that everybody is immediately saved from sin and death? No. That leads to P, personal response. The gospel is not just information. It's invitation. The gospel is a call to repentance and faith. You look in the Bible. These are the two primary words used to describe what we must, what, how we can receive the salvation God gives. Repent and believe. Repent. Turn from your sin, yourself. Believe. Trust in Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Mark 1.15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Acts 3.19. Commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. Repent and turn to God. Acts 26.20. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you will be saved, Acts 16, 31. So these words remind us the gospel is not just good news, it's also a royal summons for traitors against God to lay down their rebellion and return to him through faith in Jesus. This is how to be saved, which is, don't miss it, extremely different from every other religious system in the world. And it's even one of the ways in which Christianity is often distorted by people who claim to be Christian. So other religious systems in the world, even some versions, so to speak, of Christianity prescribe a certain list of things one must do in order to be made right before God, to appease God or the gods. We'll talk about these in detail tonight. Follow these five pillars. Walk this eightfold path. Perform these certain rituals. Be this kind of person. Even in some versions of Christianity, particularly Catholicism in many ways, practice these sacraments. Regardless, they're in essence all the same in the sense that if you do certain things, you can be made right before God, the gods. The gospel is utterly unique here because the gospel is not good news of what you can or should or must do in order to earn the favor of God. The gospel claims there's nothing you can do. You have a sinful heart that's rebelled against God. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to appease God, you'll still have the stain of sin in your heart and your life, as we said, hopelessly sinful. 
But this is what makes the gospel good news. Well, it makes the gospel the greatest news in all the world. You and I can be saved from our sin, not based on anything we do, but based on trusting in all that he has done for us. The gospel clearly declares that there is no other way for sinners to be saved, and it categorically denies that sinners can earn their salvation by anything they do themselves. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice what he's not saying there. Jesus is not saying, I point you to the way. I show you the way. If you follow this way, you do those things, and you can be saved. That's what every other religious leader has said. Follow these pillars, that path. Do this, do that. Jesus doesn't say that. He he doesn't say, I point you to the way. He says, I'm the way. I am. Me. It's personal. How do you come to God? By putting your, your trust in me. Not your trust in yourself, but putting your trust in me. By grace, you can be saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Believe in him, period. Not believe in him and then do some good things for him. If you do enough good things, then you can be saved. No, it's just believe in him and you will be saved. It's the revolutionary invitation and challenge of the gospel. The gospel challenges and compels hearers to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, confessing him as Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And eternity is dependent on how you respond to this news. E, in gospel, eternal urgency. The Bible teaches that heaven is a glorious reality for everyone who believes the gospel. When you turn from your sin, put your trust in Jesus, you are saved from your sin, forgiven of all your sin in such a way that when you die, the ultimate penalty of sin has already been paid for you and you experience eternal life with God. However, if you... Do not turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. If you die in your sin, then the ultimate penalty of your sin is left to be paid by you. Eternal death apart from God. And so the Bible teaches that hell is a dreadful reality for everyone who does not believe the gospel. A dreadful, eternal reality. Again, I know not popular today, but prevalent all over the Bible. Second Thessalonians 1 talks about how those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... Some will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. Revelation 14, 11 says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And some people think imagery like that, well, that's just symbolic in the Bible. But even if it is, uh, that's not a symbol for a good place to be. That's a symbol for a horrible place to be that will last forever. In case we didn't catch the magnitude of that word, Revelation 14, It says forever and ever. Thomas Watson, Puritan preacher from the past, says, thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? The word ever breaks the heart. Jonathan Edwards described an eternal hell this way. He said, when you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up all your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then you'll have so done when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. The gospel contains eternal urgency. Urgency even now in this gathering tonight, if you've never turned from your sin and yourself and put all your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, not in what you can do, but in what he has done, I urge you to do that tonight. And people will object and say, that's too easy. You mean all I have to do is believe? And the answer is, yes, this is the good news of the gospel. And when you believe, that leads to L, life transformation. 
When you turn from your sin and yourself, your every effort to earn the favor of God and make things right yourself, you trust in the G and Jesus is the one who saved you from your sin, the one who's Lord over your life. It changes everything about you. Think about it. All who believe the gospel, what does the Bible teach? Are forgiven. They stand before God completely justified in his sight, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. This is how God sees you. When you put your faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, you're in Christ Jesus. All who believe the gospel have been reconciled to God. You've returned to God to know and enjoy him in relationship with him. Keep going here with how the Bible describes you. All who believe the gospel have been adopted by God, are alive in Christ, have been born again by the Holy Spirit. All who believe the gospel now possess the Holy Spirit as a down payment, foretaste of their inheritance in Christ. His presence dwells in you, the Bible teaches. All who believe the gospel are part of the body of Christ. The church joined with a family that spans generations generations across history and the nations of the world in which all who believe the gospel are kept by the power of God and salvation until they see him face to face, confident that one day all who believe the gospel will one day be free from sin as they live with God forever in infinite joy and glory. Oh, all this is so key. It's this relationship with God that's the goal of the gospel. So the gospel begins with God and it ends with God. It all revolves around God, which is so important because so many versions of the gospel today, instead of communicating that God is the end of the gospel, Various versions of the gospel community that God is a means to some other end. So maybe most prevalent are what's called the so-called prosperity gospel. People here around the world told, trust in Jesus, you'll have good health in this world. Trust in Jesus, you'll have wealth in this world. Trust in Jesus, all these things, good will happen to you. That is directly counter to the message of the gospel and scripture. The Bible makes clear, crystal clear, you don't come to Jesus to get this or that in the world. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. He's the one we want more than anything else in the world. He's the one we need. And look at all we have in him. All these realities are just listed. So I put in your notes, significant reminder, after talking about forgiveness, adoption, Holy Spirit, reconciliation to God, it's important to remember that these treasures and not earthly health or prosperity are the true gifts of the gospel. And gospel presentations must be clear about this if they're going to be faithful to scripture. So what is the gospel? It's the good news that the one only and true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin through his substitutionary death on the cross, to show his power over sin and death and the resurrection from the grave so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Ah. Uh, So I think this would be a good time in just a minute to break, but before we do, and I didn't know how far we we're going to get, but I, I don't think it's an accident that we're time-wise at this point right now, uh, whether in this room or wherever you might be watching, uh, this, this is God's love for you. He loves you so much. And he's made a way for you, though, you are dead in sin and have rebelled against him. He's made a way for you to be reconciled to him forever. And I think it would be a mistake to go to this break without just pausing and having time where people in this room or people listening in different places might just say for the first time in your mind and your heart to God, yes, I embrace this gospel. So would you bow your heads with me? Uh, and I just want to give you a couple moments in silence. If you have never, and it's, not, it's not just believing truths about Jesus, but seeing your sin and casting yourself on God. God, save me from my sin. Not based on anything I can do, but based on what you've done in Jesus.
And if you've never done that, can I just invite you, urge you to, to do that right now? In your heart, just say yes to Jesus. Oh God, we praise you for your love for us. We praise you for not leaving us alone in our sin. We praise you for even right now in this holy moment, speaking to hearts in places all across the United States and around the world and opening eyes to your grace and your mercy. And whether it's somebody sitting alone or in a house or somebody sitting in this room, your love penetrating and changing heart, mind, and life. We praise you for the salvation you have given us, Lord Jesus. We praise you for the cross. We praise you for taking our payment of sin upon yourself. We praise you for dying the death we deserve to die. And we praise you for conquering the enemy we could not conquer. We praise you that through faith in you we have eternal life. So we thank you for saving even now and God we pray that in the rest of the moments we have tonight that you would just strengthen our hearts hold on this gospel and you'd help us to see how best to make it known in the world around us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical dot net.